Welcome to Helix Talk, a podcast presented by the Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. We're hoping that our real-life clinical pearls and discussions will help you stay up-to-date and improve your pharmacy knowledge. This podcast contains general information for educational purposes only. This is not professional advice and should not be used in lieu of obtaining advice from a qualified healthcare provider. And now, on to the show. Hi, Helix Talk listeners. This is Dr. Kane. I wanted to let you know that this episode originally aired on March 16th, but we actually had a correction for the episode that was sent in by one of our listeners. Around 24 minutes into the episode, you'll hear us talk about the Vicura pack, which is a combination product for hepatitis C. We incorrectly say that it is two tablets in the morning, one tablet at night. In actuality, it's three tablets in the morning, one tablet at night. And the confusion comes because one of the tablets, which has three active ingredients, ambitosphere, paratapravir, and ritonavir, you take two of those tablets every morning. The other active ingredient, dazapovir, you take once in the morning, once at night, equating to three total tablets in the morning, one tablet at night. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Helix Talk, episode 23. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann. Dr. Cutreau. And I'm Dr. Patel. And we've loved Dr. Cutreau so much, we've asked her to come back for a very special episode today. This is actually pretty personal to me. So recently I was going through uh, a glucometer bag for a patient, and the patient left one of his insulin needles in his bag that was exposed, and he's a hepatitis C patient. So uh, I had an accidental needle stick, and now I have to be worried about hepatitis C. And I know that there's a lot of new drug therapies uh, with hepatitis C, and I wanted to kind of pick your guys' brains given all of these new drug therapies. Well, sorry to hear that, Dr. Kane, but you're here to answer your questions. So first off, I know that hepatitis C um, has some pretty important complications with it. So, um, you know, I haven't been tested yet to confirm that I have hep C, but if I do, kind of what is a typical prognosis for a patient like myself? Well, one thing we do know is that about 80% of individuals who do have the an acute infection will then go on to a, a chronic hep C, and then furthermore, 20% of those will go on to develop cirrhosis. And then furthermore from there, about 25% will actually go on and develop liver cancer, so, uh, identified as hepatocellular carcinoma. And they may even have uh, decompensated liver disease as well. Yeah, overall the time course is pretty chronic uh, if you do develop chronic hepatitis C. So those end-stage complications of cirrhosis and hepatocellular carcinoma may not occur until 10 to 20 years down the line. So while you might not have any symptoms now, it might be something that you might become sick with later. That's interesting. Although the time course might be different with HIV, it reminds me a lot of HIV in the sense that some of the progression of disease doesn't happen for years down the road as opposed to kind of an acute event. Correct. And this progression, the chronic nature of Pepsi, is also considered when people, um, you know, clinicians and patients likewise make decisions whether they need to be treated at that moment or they want to put up the uh, treatment to a later time because there's some time in between um, this end-stage com- comorbidities come across. And I would guess then that, um, as we'll talk about with the treatment of hep C, I would guess that the damage done by the virus uh, is not reversible with the drug therapy, so it's probably more important to be on the front end and kind of prevent it as opposed to treating the hep C virus after the fact. Exactly. It's um, more important to treat patients that do have some of those end-stage complications, but per guidelines, it's recommended that any patient affected with hepatitis C be treated. 
Dr. Kane, just to go off of something you said before, comparing it to HIV, and one thing that is different, though, is that unlike HIV, where you have the idea about what we're trying to do is decrease the, the viral load while still sustaining our CD4 count, in, he, in here, what we're actually able to do is, and the goal is to completely cure the disease, and then, again, as was mentioned by Dr. Cattro, to prevent further complications by catching it as early as possible. And so here, cure is SVR, or sustained virologic response. So what you're saying is with hep C, our goal is to actually cure to make it so the patient has no hep C virus in them at all, as opposed to HIV, where we're managing viral loads and managing CD4 counts. Correct. Right. And we're evaluating this as we are basically looking at certain copies of virus in the, in the serum or the blood. Uh, depending on the treatment that you choose, this test will occur either at 12 to 24 weeks uh, in the course of therapy. Hmm. So most patients will know within a year then if whatever regimen they're on was successful in the sense of curing them of hep C or not. This is not a 10-year-down-the-road kind of thing. Exactly. Unless they get reinfected, I assume. Right. And so it's really important to also evaluate any partners of the patient um, to make sure that they're not also infected because that's a common point of reinfection. Interesting. So I remember when I was in pharmacy school, there was kind of a two-drug go-to regimen for hep C, but... Um, as I understand that there's a lot of newer therapies that have come to the market in the past couple of years. So kind of historically, what was the standard of care and what was kind of wrong with it? Why do we need these newer agents on the market? So standard of care was really two drugs, as you mentioned, pegylated interferon and ribavirin. And so this was anywhere from 28 to 48 weeks duration of treatment. Uh, pegylated interferon was injectable and the two medications together had a lot of adverse drug effects. And not only looking at the adverse drug reaction, even though patients go through this chronic therapy, enduring all these side effects, the response rate was pretty low. And when we look at the SBR rate was comparatively very low compared to the new medications that are out in the market now. Yeah, for genotype 1, which is the most common genotype that we treat in the United States, SVR rates were anywhere from 30 to 40% with this combination treatment. That's not very good then. No. So then what would happen historically to a patient where they went through this, let's say, 48-week regimen and didn't attain cure or SVR, what, did they have something else that could be done for them? Typically, they would go untreated until they were ready to be retried on the medication, hmm. um, although the likelihood of that being effective is very low. So one of the best brand names on the market is one of the pegylated interferon products. It's Pegasus, and I think that that is an awesome brand name. The other one's Pegintron, and as I understand, um, they're not AB rated, meaning that they're not the same drug. Is there a clinical difference between the two types of uh, pegylated interferon or peginterferon? No, the dosing is different between the two, but it's still an injection that's given once a week for both preparations. One's interferon 2A and one's interferon 2B. However, they both have similar efficacy rates. And I know that you guys mentioned some of the adverse reactions associated with this regimen. Are there any kind of standouts that if I were to take this regimen, I'd want to know about as a patient? I know for me, again, from the mental health side, I always focus on the, the sometimes crippling psychiatric effects of these medications. In a lot of medications, we say, you know, may cause depression, but in this case, this is one that can cause some really, really nasty depressive symptoms so far to actually cause a black box warning on this medication that it can, may cause or exacerbate life-threatening neuropsychiatric disorders such as depression. 
The one that patients tend to notice the most are the flu-like side effects of the interferon itself. Uh, they tend to be awful and lead to a high rate of discontinuation of the medications. Hmm. So I'm thinking there is some sort of prophylaxis that we give patients before they get these injections? Sometimes they will uh, try to take an NSAID or like ibuprofen or naproxen. However, that's minimally effective. And just going back, uh, what exactly are we doing? What is the mechanism, if you will, of this interferon product? And what does pegylated mean? I think that that's important uh, to understand. So regular interferon has a more frequency of administration because that molecule's uh, action of duration is shorter. But if you attach some PEG molecules to it, you increase their duration of action. So instead of patients having to take it every day or three times a week, the pegylated kind of version can be given once a week. So again, that reduces those horrible flu-like symptoms that patient would get with each administration. Um, and basic mechanism of action is it's an antiviral, basically kind of upregulates the hormonal system. There are a lot of different pathways that occur through it. Basically, the end result is suppression of a hep C virus. So then what you're saying is that this interferon kind of upregulates the immune system that makes it your immune system work better to fight off the hep C virus. That is correct. Uh, any other warnings or issues with the drug in terms of adverse effects? Well, there is an additional box warning for this one. may cause or exacerbate autoimmune, infectious, or cardiovascular ischemic disorders, so a, a CVA or even an MI. So again, not, not a delightful event that you would like to occur. Yeah, we also monitor a CBC on the patients because it can cause bone marrow suppression and neutropenia, along with ribavirin, which can also do the same. The two together definitely increases the risk. And, you know, if you look in the packaging for pegylated interferon, you're going to see a lot of fairly nonspecific adverse effects, but fairly high rates of them. And sometimes I think it's probably hard to discern out between the hepatitis C virus causing things like fatigue, uh, cirrhosis causing fatigue, and then uh, the drug effect itself. Yeah, that is definitely true. And, you know, um, this therapy is a chronic therapy. If you can imagine 48 weeks, you know, that's most uh, half, more than half of the year. But um, looking at chronically, too, there are certain ambulatory type of side effects that come in play, too, which is hypertriglyceride levels. And we're looking at, you know, increased blood glucose um, levels, too, so like impaired fasting glucose. So these patients not only have to complete the therapy because we don't want them to retry it, you know, they're already somewhat way through the therapy, then we have to add other agents to control their triglycerides or control their blood sugars and et cetera. And then you mentioned ribavirin. Uh, is that also a, an injection, or how is that given to a patient? Ribavirin is given as a weight-based oral regimen. Um, so if the patient's 75 kilograms or higher, they'll get 1,200 milligrams per day. And if it's less than 75, they'll get one gram per day. And it's split in divided doses. So does ribavirin do something different than what uh, pegylated interferon brings to the table in terms of mechanism of action? So ribavirin you know, is a nucleoside analog. What this one does is cause chain termination for the, for the viral RNA. So again, thinking back to HIV, this sounds like some of the HIV drugs that we had kind of are NRTIs in the sense that it caused early chain termination by incorporating itself into the RNA process. Although with HIV, I would assume that this would not be active for HIV, right? Correct. Right. And like Dr. Cattrall mentioned earlier, there is a box warning for hemolytic anemia. So along with um, checking patients' CBC for PAG interferon, we want to also do the same for the rubber as well. So when we say hemolytic anemia, I, I don't know for sure that 
all listeners would fully understand what that means. So could you kind of go through, not even the mechanism, but kind of what is the clinical consequence of hemolytic anemia? So basically, hemolytic anemia, like the name says, there is a lysis of the red blood cells. And if you cut open a lot of red blood cells, there is an influx of intracellular material into the extracellular material, mainly we're worried about the potassium um, influx potassium outflux. So increased potassium and hyperkalemia, which can lead to other conduction-related cardiac abnormalities. And I'd imagine, too, that patients, given anemia is in the name and your lice and your red blood cells, patients would probably have symptoms of anemia that help hint to them that something isn't right because they're not checking a CBC every morning when they're at home. Yeah, typically fatigue is the thing that people tend to notice first. So we always caution patients when they start to notice uh, new onset fatigue to let us know as soon as possible. This sounds severe enough that I would almost want it to be a box warning if it is common enough. Oh, it is a box warning, actually. Um, This medication also, just to mention, is category X for pregnancy. And so it's important that even men taking the medication are aware of this because they can actually cause a teratogenic effect to the unborn fetus. So this sounds like it's a pretty involved drug therapy. We see a lot of adverse effects, a lot of monitoring with it, weekly subcutaneous injections. We have some issues with handling around pregnant women, things like that. Given all the toxicities, I'd hope that we get some good efficacy out of the drug therapy then? Unfortunately not. As we mentioned with the two medications, the response rate is anywhere from 30 to 40 percent for genotype 1, much higher with some of the genotype 2 and 3 infections, however. So I can really see a good area then for new drug therapies to come into the market where they're more efficacious and have a better safety profile. Yes. So what what can you offer me here? <laughs> so you're in luck. There are a lot of new agents. Uh, so we have these new direct-acting antiviral class. Um, there were some first-generation agents back in 2011 that had minimal response, and those were bosepervir and telepravir. So with these two agents, I know these were ones that came out right when I was beginning my residency, and I remember them being an NS3-4A protease inhibitor. So what it cleaves the viral particles into these functional pieces, and, and it seems to be more efficacious than the others. And so we've actually gone from about 30 to 40% all the way up to 60 to 70%. So we did increase the SVR rate, which was great. Um, however, these agents cannot be used by themselves, meaning they have to be used with pegylated interferon and ribavirin. So here we're talking about mound of side effects, okay, increased side effects, um, then even just the two-drug regimen, which was the standard of care before. Um, not only that, you know, patients are bound to take more uh, pills in terms of both bosoprevir and teleprevir. Um, the way the regimen was designed and studied, uh, you know, the patients had to use one to two tablets at least um, three times a day. So tremendous uh, increase in burden, and we have to kind of be considerate of developing resistance if they are not compliant to the therapy. So what kind of toxicities did these agents bring to the table that we didn't have as much of with our pegylated interferon plus ribavirin? Some of them were additive to the fatigue uh, and nausea. However, itchiness, including perianal itching, and then also dysglesia or an altered taste were some of the additional side effects that we saw with these two agents. So then what you're telling me is that you want me to take the ribavirin, pegylated interferon, and one of these two newer agents that are protease inhibitors that improve efficacy but also worsen the safety profile in terms of the tolerance 
the patient tolerance to the medication. Well, luckily you don't have to take them, and neither does anyone else, because they've been taken off the market. And they've been replaced with some newer direct-acting antivirals. Um, so a similar agent in this class was simeprevir, so similar mechanism of action, but later generation. When we say similar mechanism of action, again, I'm thinking in my head HIV therapy. Although these aren't active for HIV, I think we can probably correlate that a lot to what we know about HIV. So we do have protease inhibitors with HIV. Is that kind of the same concept here? It's very similar overall. I think uh, we know a lot more about HIV and how it replicates, and we're still learning a lot about hepatitis C. But overall, there are a lot of similar pathways to viral replication with hepatitis C as HIV. Hmm. So you mentioned some protease inhibitors uh, that are new to the market. Are there any other mechanisms out there that we'll probably see more of in terms of hep C treatment? Yeah, so just like those protease inhibitors that are NS34A inhibitors, we do have NS5A inhibitors. Like Just like Dr. Kutro said, there are a lot of uh, different sites of action uh, to prevent the replication of this virus. And basically, this NS5A protein is involved in a wide variety of different replication and assembly steps. So if you prevent that from happening, you would dampen the um, HCV replication. I mean, in a similar fashion, again, to the drawing the analogies between this and HIV, we also have what are called NS5B RNA polymerase inhibitors. And so these come into two classes, which are the NPIs and the NNPIs. And again, if that sounds familiar to the same language of NRTIs and NNRTIs with HIV, then you're right, except here it's a nucleoside polymerase inhibitor and then a non-nucleoside polymerase inhibitor. And then we really only have one age in each of these, so we have so Fosbavir, which is our NPI, and then the Sabavir, which is going to be our NNPI. And again, thinking back to HIV, the difference between the NPI and the NNPI is that the NPI is incorporated into that RNA chain, whereas the NNPI is binding somewhere else on that RNA polymerase um, external to the actual chain itself, right? Exactly. So it seems like we have a lot of novel drug targets that we're looking at now, and I would imagine that these kind of came out, you know, if Bosepravir and Teleprevir came out in 2011, I would imagine these came out after that then. Yeah, so many of them have been approved very recently. The Vicura pack, which is a combination product that we'll talk about, is approved as recently as January. Wow. Okay, so this is kind of a super hot topic in drug therapy in terms of what we'll be doing in the future and which regimens will catch on and things like that. So I'm hoping you'll have good news for me that these drugs are safer and more efficacious than the uh, agents that you were trying to convince me of using previously. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about them. So one of the first combinations that we started using with the approval of some of these medications was the combination of sofosbuvir and semeprevir. So semeprevir, again, is an NS34A protease inhibitor, and sofosbuvir is an NS5B NPI. So the two of these together were taken once daily. Semeprevir has to be taken with food, so we would recommend taking them at the same time. And uh, just to review then that semeprevir was similar to the bosepravir and teleprevir in terms of how it worked, correct? Exactly. It had better efficacy overall. And with the approval of sofosbuvir, sofosbuvir is a very potent antiviral. And so the two together was a novel combination. And we found that we could use them without using ribavirin or pegylated interferon for the first time. So you're telling me I don't have to inject myself every week? Probably not. Not only that, you don't have to feel like you're having flu every week. 
Interesting. Okay. And then again, so we're looking at side effects, and this is a, n a nice thing where they're fairly well tolerated generally, a few ADRs, but again, nothing that's coming out to the degree of those those delightful warnings with some of those other agents. So I looked this up on Wikipedia, which is where I get all of my drug information, and I saw that I have to worry about photosensitivity. Is that true? Yes. Uh, so photosensitivity and itching with semeprovir in particular is important. So we would recommend staying out of sun as much as possible or using things like sunscreen and covering up. Um, additionally, you can see just random itching. This can be very mild and it can occur anywhere in the body. We had some patients that had random itching in their throat, others in the eye. Otherwise, it can just be on the skin and it can happen any time of day. Um, so what we recommend is on, if it does occur on the skin, just using a fragrance-free lotion um, and staying as well hydrated as possible. Converse to that, if it's in the eyes, using uh, just a regular eye drop or tear replacement. So you don't recommend scratching the eyeball? No, we don't. Yeah. <laughs> And then, unlike Bosepravir and Teleprevir, this is not restricted to anal itching or anal paritis, right? Correct. It can be, like I said, anywhere. I actually haven't had anybody that's complained about anal itching because I would expect that to come up. But typically, the time people notice it the most is usually when they're laying in bed. So one of our patients just got up out of bed, went and got a drink of water, came back just to get his mind off the itching. When he came back, he wasn't thinking about it, so he didn't notice it as much. So sometimes just changing what you're doing to get your mind off the itch is just as effective as using lotion or a pill. I mean, it almost sounds like this is more than just run-of-the-mill, like a little bit of itching. Is this to the point where it could impact a patient's perception of the drug therapy where they would want to not take it because they're having itching? It could be. It's important that we counsel patients on it, and we always tell them to call us before just stopping the medication because it is very expensive, as we'll talk about. And so once we can get it, we really want them to commit to therapy. And so we'll, we've done things like prescribed hydroxyzine so that it can help them sleep, especially if they're noticing at bedtime. That's really the best drug because it's going to help them sleep. It's going to make them drowsy, but it's also going to help with some of the itching. And I would assume that this isn't itching related to cirrhosis with high bilirubin levels. It's actually a drug effect, right? Correct. So as a pharmacist, I can generally pronounce drug names fairly well, but patients may be more familiar with the brand name. So are there brand names associated with these newer agents yet? Yes. So Cefospivir is Savaldi and Semeprovir is Olisio. Yeah, and a good thing about, you know, this new combination is that unlike the Bosepravir and Tilaprovir, which is out of the market now, these agents are only taken once a day. So we're looking at increased compliance to the therapy. Perhaps that can translate into increased SVR as well. And the one thing to clarify, though, is that even though they are once daily, there is no combo product available. So it would be once daily of each one as a separate entity. So there would be, would be two separate products, just to clarify. So, Dr. Patel, you got my attention with better SVR, better cure rate. So I'm even okay with better uh, adverse effect profile. But if you're going to tell me that we have a better SVR rate, that would make me extremely happy. So we are looking at the SVR rate improvement from... 30 to 40% just with pegylated interferon and rabavirin to 60 to 70% if we use bosoprovir and teleprovir in addition to pegylated uh, interferon and rabavirin to 90 plus percent using this new agent. So we're talking about tremendous increase in the, um, the rate of cure. Just think about that for a second. That blows my mind. So within the past couple years, we've come out with new drug therapies that take our cure rate, not just treatment rate, but cure rate of a disease that causes uh, hepatocellular carcinomas and cirrhosis. And we've taken it from low 30s 
all the way up to greater than 90, sometimes even 95%. Yeah, it's very exciting. And yeah. then to further illustrate it, some patients can then take what's essentially a 100% oral regimen, take that once a day as a, you know, a two-pill combo, two pills once a day, and then achieve a cure rate within three to six months. This seems like a game changer to me in terms of drug therapy for hep C. It is. A lot of patients that weren't being treated before are now being treated, which is really exciting. Wow. And I'm very excited that our healthcare money, is, you know, that's put into research is bringing about such novel medication that would not only improve the efficacy, but also improve the safety profile. So I'm sold. I'm ready for my Sovaldi and Olicio. Is there anything else I have to even consider before saying yes? Yes, there are other options. So one would be the Vicuripac. This is the most recently approved combination product that's out there for the treatment of hepatitis C. So this is a combination of four different drugs. Um, Wait a minute, that's way too many for me. I was already sold on a two-drug regimen. But you don't have to take four different pills. So it's actually just three pills a day instead of, you know, four pills twice a day or whatever you were thinking. So the different medications that are in this are ambitosphere, paratapravir, disapuvir, and ritonavir. Ambitosphere, paratapravir, and ritonavir are actually in a combination pill. And then the disapuvir, you do have to take separately. So it's two pills uh, that are taken in the morning and then one other pill, the disapravir, that I take twice a day. Right. The combination pill with the three different agents in it is just once a day and then the disapuvir is twice a day. So wait a second, I just heard ritonavir. Isn't that the agent we use for HIV treatment? Why is it here? So we're actually using it for boosting of this regimen. So we know it's a potent CYP3A4 inhibitor, and so it's actually there to boost part of this regimen. Each daily dose is packaged together, and so that comes in a giant box that the patients have. So each giant box is a one-week supply. And by giant, I mean it's probably eight inches tall by four by four. So less convenient than, let's say, a vial, a prescription vial or bottle, but um, I would imagine that that probably helps with compliance given that it's kind of complicated. You have one drug that you take in the morning and then another drug that you take twice a day in terms of which one is which and things like that. Yeah, if you think about the methyl dose pack or the Z-pack that's out there, so it's packaged very similar to that where it tells the patients they need to take two in the morning and then one pill in the evening. So really in and of itself, it makes for a nice compliance aid. It does. You just have to have a lot of cabinet space. In terms of adverse effects, is it fairly similar to what we saw with Sovaldi and Alessio? Overall, yes, it's pretty well tolerated. We haven't used this medication in a lot of patients in my clinic yet, um, just because it is so new. Um, And also there's a lot of drug interactions with the ritonavir being a CYP3A4 inhibitor. So that is something you have to consider in your patient population. But with the ritonavir, we know there's a risk of nausea and GI side effects. And so that's something to keep in mind. And then other things that we've seen have been itching, difficulty sleeping, and then fatigue. Okay. I mean, for right now, I think I'm going to stick with option number one. It sounds like I need a lot of cabinet space. The pill burden is a little worse for me. So personally, I think I'm going to say no to the Vicura pack. But thank you for your offer. But don't you want to hear what's between under door number three, though? Oh, I'm interested. Uh, And and behind door number three, we have a product called Harvoni. This is a a combination product of Lodipasvir and Sofosbavir. Uh, Lodipasvir is the, it's an NS5A inhibitor, and then Sofosbavir is an NS5B, again, that NPI, that's analogy to the NRTI and HIV. And once again, this is, yeah, once a daily, with or without foods, you got options. 
Yeah, I mean, if you look at the package inserts, it says it's fairly well tolerated side effects such as, you know, mouth fatigue, some headaches, some nausea and insomnia scene. I mean, what do you say, Dr. Cattrall, what have your experience been in the practice? Overall, since Harvoni's come out, it's pretty much dominated what we've been prescribing for patients because of the convenience, and it also has less drug interactions compared to the Vicuripac or even uh, Olysio uh, combination products because Olysio, going back to the Semeprevir, is a cytochrome P450 substrate, whereas Lodipasir and Cefosbuvir don't have um, cytochrome P450 interactions to the same extent as the other groups. Yeah, I've got a patient who's been kind of trucking right along with his warfarin regimen while we've had him on this, and it's been no issues there. So just to review with Harboni, it's one tablet that's a combo product that I take once a day, with or without food, that has very few drug interactions and a relatively favorable adverse effect profile. With that said, just out of curiosity, if we don't have drug interactions on the liver side, are there any renal issues that we have to worry about with any of these regimens? So overall, unfortunately, we don't know. Um, once a creatinine clearance drops below 30 has been something that a lot of patients were excluded from the clinical trials for having. And so we don't have data as far as how these drugs do in patients with really low creatinine clearance. Mild changes in renal function are unlikely to affect these agents since most of them are going through um, metabolism pathways. So a lot of these regimens, either the Cefospavir, Semeprevir, or Elysio and Savaldi, the Vicuripac, and then also Harvoni, these treatments are primarily recommended for treatment of genotype 1. For genotypes 2 and 3, which are the other genotypes that we see here in the United States most commonly, we're still actually using a combination of Cefospavir and Ribavirin for the majority of those patients. All right, so I'm sold probably on Harvoni, although this podcast doesn't endorse any specific regimen. It does sound like that that's a pretty good regimen to take, one tablet once a day, very few if any drug interactions. How long do I have to take the drug for? So it actually really depends on many different factors. So meaning what type of hep C infection you have. You got four different genotypes, right? One, two, three, and four. Uh, depends. Well, in your case, you know, we can consider you treatment naive, but in a lot of patients who have failed therapy with pegylated interferon, ribavirin, uh, there might be some resistant pattern in the, the RNA of the hep C virus. So we might have to maybe approach it a little differently when we treat these patients. And patients who have that and stage complications such as cirrhosis, they are also treated a little bit differently. But in general, most patients will receive this treatment for 12 to 24 weeks. So just to review, decades ago, we were giving pegylated interferon with rabavirin for how long? 24 to 48 weeks. And now we've gone to 12 to 24 weeks with oral-only therapy, no injections. Exactly. It's crazy. I'm sold. What? What... What could possibly be any downside to this new oral therapy? I guess the issue is how deep are your pockets? What do you mean by that? The one thing about these medications are going to be the, 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 uh, the average wholesale price of these can, can get a little bit, little bit high, again, due to you know, factors such as the amount of effort that's been taken to, to produce these medications. So we have Harvoni, it's AWP, about $38,000 per month. 38000 per month? Per month. Really? You got it. I've got health insurance. Does that help? It can. It depends on the insurance. Usually there's a lengthy prior authorization approval process needed. So it's not something I would expect to start right away. Typically, they have to go back and forth with your physician's office to make sure that they have all the proper labs and that you're being appropriately followed up on. 
Um, and because they're so expensive, a lot of insurance companies want to make sure the right people are getting treated first. So sometimes they make you form a little bit of a line. So when it is covered, is it is there still a significant out-of-pocket cost for a patient, or is the insurance company truly providing you know a full coverage of that that drug? Obviously, it depends on the insurer, but speaking in generalities, typically not. Um, typically, there's a percentage out-of-pocket cost for most of these medications. However, the manufacturers of these drugs do have very generous patient assistance programs. So they'll typically have copay assistance coupons that are available. Those are really only for privately insured patients. So if patients have Medicare or Medicaid, they're generally not um, eligible for these types of programs. Uh, patients that do have Medicaid or Medicare and can't afford the out-of-pocket costs or don't get the medications approved, there are patient assistance programs also through the companies that will provide the medication free of charge. Again, it's something where you have to fill out a lot of forms, and there's a lot of back and forth typically with the physician's office. However, we've been very successful in getting these for patients when they really need them. And so how it works is the drug companies will typically ship the medication to the physician's office, and then we'll dispense each month of the medication to the patient directly. They do have to submit income information, and so they usually, if they have significant income, even if their out-of-pocket costs are very high, they might not be eligible for this patient assistance. So it sounds like there's a lot of different avenues that you can go down in terms of not paying a full cash price for the drug product then. Exactly. Okay. I'm not great with pharmacoeconomics, but I would imagine that this drug cost came from somewhere. So, Dr. Schumann, as you alluded to, part of it was the drug discovery process in terms of coming up with a novel and really, really important way to treat hep C in terms of less adverse effects and... Shorter duration of therapy. Shorter duration, oral only, better efficacy. Are there any other reasons why the drug cost might be so high? So, if you look at the cost of needing a liver transplant, that's another way that you can compare it. So the cost of a liver transplant is $160,000 plus. And so these medications, by contrast, are much less um, compared to that. So that's yeah. something to keep in mind as well. And I'm sure, you know, obviously thinking about the, the cancer cost as well, if you, instead of just decompensated cirrhosis, if you're treating a carcinoma in the liver, mm -hmm. I'm sure that the cost associated with that is pretty substantial as well. Exactly. And although we didn't talk about the costs of the other drugs and combinations, I'd imagine that the drug cost is fairly similar to what we mentioned with Harboni, right? Correct. So because of the cost, um, so with the Bicure pack, it's about $33,000 per month. With Sofosbuvir and Semepravir, each are about $1,000 per pill. So if you have 28 plus 28, um, you end up getting $56,000 per month. So that's very expensive. One of the things we tell patients is to treat these like gold. Make sure that they don't leave them in their car. If they lose them, we're not sure that we can always get them replacements. So it's very important that they know where their medication is at all times. Another important counseling point is if they have to go into the hospital, that they take a at least a few pills with them so that they don't miss any doses. A lot of hospitals are not keeping these on formulary because of the cost. And so it's something that they might miss a dose if they have to, even if they get into a car accident and have to go in or have, unfortunately, some other incident or accident that occurs. Um, it's very important that they get every dose in order for these regimens to be successful. So just to wrap up, I wanted to focus on a couple things here. So one thing is in terms of our therapeutic goal for hep C treatment, as opposed to just preventing cirrhosis or preventing hepatocellular 
carcinoma, our therapeutic goal is SVR, or sustained virologic response, which means cure, meaning that the hep C virus is gone from the body, undetectable. That's pretty rare for some of the uh, antiviral therapies that we think about uh, with other disease states. Specifically, what I'm thinking of would be HIV. There isn't a cure for HIV, whereas with hep C, with our, our drug therapy, cure is actually a possible thing, and it's you know within reach in terms of uh, the drug therapies that we have on the market. Yeah, so we have come across a great way in achieving this um, SVR, sustained virologic response, from, you know, 30 to 40% with the couple uh, standard of care that we had about five, six years ago to now 90 plus percent of SVR with the new regimens we mentioned, such as the pack or um, Sovaldi and Elysio or um, using the Harmony. And furthermore, we're getting these cure rates without... Uh without compromising our quality of life. We've gone from these black box warnings with things such as these severe psychiatric disturbances and this hemolytic anemia and autoimmune disorders, and we're, we're looking at and maybe more reasonable burdens on an individual patient or client, such as you know, nausea. There, there is still a concern with semeprevir about itching, but beyond that, we're looking at, at more general concerns such as nausea and vomiting. Again, a, a far cry from those, those earlier warnings. So just as a review, I'm going to go over the pronunciation of the brand names as well as the generic names of the agents that are more commonly used and newly on the market. So the first one is Sofosbuvir, brand name is Savaldi. Second, we have Semeprevir, brand name is Elysio, and those two are typically used together. Um, the Vicura pack, which is the brand name for Umbidisphere, Paratapravir, Ritonavir, and Desapuvir. And then finally we have Harvoni, which is the brand name for a combination Lidiposphere and Sofosbuvir. So uh, with that, I wanted to kind of conclude. For those listeners who haven't done so already, we'd really appreciate a five-star review in iTunes. We're available at helixtalk.com. If you have any episode suggestions or topic suggestions, we're taking uh, any comments again at helixtalk.com. With that, I'm Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann. Dr. Cattro. And I'm Dr. Patel. And as always, study hard. Thank you for listening to this episode of Helix Talk. This is an educational production, copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science. For more information about the show, please visit us at helixtalk.com.